Hi, I'm Samantha Yap, and I help blockchain and cryptocurrency companies tell their stories. I'm really passionate about demystifying emerging technologies and making it easy to understand for everyone. I'm embarking on this journey to discover the history of money in order to better understand where money is heading today. In this series, we'll explore why Bitcoin, digital currencies, and decentralized finance may play an important role in our future. Come join me on the story of money by Appcast. Debt often has negative connotations associated with it. It's not ideal to owe someone money, and paying off debts is a freeing act. This is generally understood, right? Well, after this episode, your perspective on debt might change. Let's first look to the people of the Trobriand Islands, an archipelago off the east coast of Papua New Guinea, not too far from our friends on Yap Island. We can learn a thing or two about debt from their ocean-based exchange system called Kula, in which island chiefs circulate possessions in the form of precious shell necklaces called Sulava and shell bracelets called Mwali from island to island. The shell necklaces travel clockwise around the geographic ring of islands, while the bracelets travel anti-clockwise, continuously stopping only when they meet a real present need. The Kula exchange binds the tightly knit community together through debts of obligation because the objects are always on the move. So what does this tell us about debt? Well, in the case of the Trobriand Islanders, there's no such thing because all items, both practical and ceremonial, are in a permanent state of circulation. It's like a stepladder or drill in a village which might constantly be borrowed. This creates a bond between a community. It may not be in the form of a gift, but it does assume we now have a non-financial relationship with one another. This is quite unlike most financial transactions, which are settled on the spot because we assume some reciprocity. Borrowing and lending within the world of finance is most times a quite different transaction to the ones we make as related individuals or within a community. Transactions that involve debt similarly puts the borrower in the relationship with the lender. In the financial markets, those relationships are often between unrelated individuals or parties who are not in the same community. And that might explain some of the discomfort we have with debt. But how does debt fit into the broader financial markets? What is debt and why would someone want to get into it? To answer these questions, I speak with Sydney Powell, co-founder of Maple Finance, a decentralized institutional marketplace, which enables trusted institutions to borrow and lend money. Hey, Sid, thank you so much for joining us on Yapcast. Really excited to have you here. Thanks for having me, Sam. Excited to be here. Do you seem to be an expert on debt, you know, being the co-founder of Maple Finance, a decentralized institutional marketplace? Let's just touch on the basics of debt. What is debt to you? Debt is at its core. When you receive something now, which you have an obligation to repay later. So it's neither good nor bad. Debt in and of itself is just a tool. It can be used well or it can be used poorly. Right. And what do you know of the history of debt? Has it always been there? What do you know of that? 
So the story of debt is as old as the Bible. Uh, if you look, I mean, one of the original sins was usury, which was money lending. So historically, debt was always viewed quite poorly. This was because there was really a fixed mindset that you have, if you will, the economy is a pie, and the pie was neither growing nor shrinking. So if you had debt, which usually carried the obligation to pay interest, then that meant interest was, in effect, the loss of the borrower and the gain of the lender. This all changed around the time of the Renaissance when people for the first time started to have a positive view of the future. So in their minds, you could now have a bigger pie in the future and therefore debt could be a good thing because it could allow the baker to invest in expanding their business and then they would be able to afford to pay the interest and repay the debt at a later point. So it was this shift in mindset towards a growth mindset and away from a fixed mindset, which really catalyzed a different view of debt as something which could enable opportunity and development and growth. Interesting that you draw it back to, you know, how debt was in the Bible, because debt to some people is kind of regarded as a sin when you live above your means and you can't pay back what you owe. So really interesting that you view it that way. How do people kind of shift that perspective on it? So whether debt is good or bad ultimately depends on what it's used for. And when I say useful, I mean, what's it spent on? So for example, if you have a person who has difficulty with impulse buying, then debt is not going to be a great tool for them because it's going to be used on consumptive purposes. So, you know, buying a new sweater or let's say you want to spend it on gambling at the horse races. These would all be poor uses of debt because they're going to unproductive purposes. But if you want to use debt to, say, purchase a new house or buy tuition for a university degree or to expand in a new shop front for your business, these would all be productive purposes because they're going towards an investment in something in which you expect a greater return in the future. So it ultimately comes down to the choice of what you spend that debt on as to whether it's good or bad. That's really helpful that you've given us examples of good and bad debt and personal finances. Are there any other examples of good and bad debt when it comes to like our personal spending? Yeah. So I think when it comes to personal spending, so let's say that if you want to purchase a car, for example, because you want to buy a really expensive top of the line car, well, that's probably a poor use of debt. But if you're somebody who needs to travel for work and you're purchasing that car, so that you can serve more customers. Let's say you were a delivery driver and you can now double the number of customers you can serve by getting a better car. That would be a positive use of debt in a personal sense. That's a good point. Maybe we'll go into paying the debt off. Yeah, that is a good point to draw. So where you where you use the debt to buy something, which would generate cash flows that can pay that debt off over time, well, that's actually quite a positive use of debt, uh, provided you don't take out too much. So that would be, let's say it's a baker and they purchase a new oven. Well, the oven is generating revenue for them, which they can use to pay off that debt over time. So you can see that it's actually a very productive use of debt because at the end of the loan, they will have an oven that can produce four loaves of bread to expand their business and they will have paid off that debt. Whereas if they used it to simply purchase a brand new Ferrari, in five years time, they still have the debt because the Ferrari is not paying it off and the Ferrari is now worth less than when they purchased it. They've effectively got nothing out of it. Actually, back to the baker example or businesses, I think it's about the balance of not borrowing too much. 
So making sure that you're borrowing enough to know that the revenue that you might be making can pay off that loan. You know, how does one strike that balance? I mean, similar with, I guess, a home loan, you need to have enough income to make sure you pay that off. How do we all strike the right balance? Yeah, so generally finding the right balance, there's a few rules of thumb. So if you're using debt for your business, you might look to cap the amount of debt that you take on to say, at most, maybe three to five times what you would call operating income of your business. So in the case of a baker, they would limit the amount of debt to three to five times what they sell the loaves of bread for, less the cost of the flour that goes into making that bread. And therefore, they know that it wouldn't take them too long to pay off that debt. So three to five times, well, they would expect they might be able to pay it off in three to five years then versus a debt that they're going to be saddled with for you know 10 to 20 years. Similarly, when people are taking on debt to say buy a mortgage or a house, that's a longer term loan. So it's typically 20 to 30 years. And so what they would look for is they're taking on debt that they can still meet their regular household expenditures and have a little bit left to save and still pay the interest on that home loan. So that would be you know, a reasonable amount of debt. If they find that they've taken out so much they can no longer meet the interest payments of the debt, that would be a pretty good indicator that they've extended themselves beyond their means. And that's really what it's about, taking on only so much that you can improve either the quality of your business or the quality of your lifestyle through having a home, but not so much that you can no longer actually afford to service that debt. I think that there are, you know, there's a principle coming from the Bible as well, where you've got to pay off your debt. And to be free, you got to be debt free. However, today there is, I mean, let's say millennials, even Gen Z today, they're going to graduate with a student debt and then they're going to spend a few years working their first jobs and then they're going to save enough to put a deposit down for their home loan. So it seems like they're going to be in this perpetual debt. Is this a part of life? Are we always going to be in debt or should we strive to pay off all our debts? But is that even possible? I mean, could you explain a little bit about that? There's this binary idea that you're either settled with a lot of debt or you need to get to the point where you have no debt. Having no debt is certainly having less obligations and it means that you're in a state of lower risk. But let's be clear, having debt does not mean you're insolvent. So for example, Elon Musk famously took out several margin loans, which were backed by his equity holdings in Tesla and SpaceX to purchase houses. Now he had debt, but he was far from in trouble financially. And this was because he made the decision that his equity in Tesla and SpaceX was going to be worth more in future or growing at a faster rate than the interest cost of his debt. Therefore, it made a lot of sense to take out debt now rather than selling his productive assets, you know, the equity in Tesla and SpaceX. So what I would say to someone is you don't need to necessarily be debt free because having some debt does not mean you're insolvent, provided that you still have an income that allows you to service that debt and you have assets which are going to be worth more in future. So I would say you don't need to completely eradicate debt. Now, that said, the problems facing a lot of Gen Zs and millennials are that the cost of education has expanded precipitously. This means that arguably we're not actually getting value for money anymore when we pay for a degree, and we're needing to finance that degree with student loans. So this is the problem where we're now taking out debt to pay for something that's actually perhaps not necessarily increasing our human capital and our earning potential that much. The other thing is that because of zoning laws in a lot of areas, the single biggest purchase in most people's lives is the family home, right? 
And so now house prices have appreciated because zoning laws have been managed poorly such that house prices have skyrocketed and the supply of new housing has not kept up with the increase in demand. So arguably now two of the biggest expenditures that Gen Zs and millennials will pay for in their lifetime, their degree and their house are now costing more and delivering less value and are increasingly needing to be financed with larger amounts of debt. So I would say that is a problem to be aware of. That is a problem. So then would you say they're in debt and that debt is not generating enough human capital for them to grow from there? So would you say that's bad debt? I would say it's bad debt. I would say on average, the average person who goes and gets a college degree and then enters the workforce and then tries to purchase a house is probably getting a raw deal. They're probably over-leveraging themselves and their increase in human capital from the degree is not commensurate with the additional cost of paying for it and how much it's gone up over the last 10 years. And a lot of them are paying a, a very large price for a house on the expectation that that is going to appreciate in value. So a house is viewed as both a really important lifestyle purchase, but also an investment to a lot of people. And I would say the fact that house prices have appreciated so much now means they're not likely to appreciate that much in the future. And so what people are doing in our generation, Sam, is that they are choosing to exit on both fronts. So they're choosing alternatives like more entrepreneurialism or alternatives to a university degree, like say Lambda School, which teaches you how to go code. And then you don't get saddled with upfront debt. Instead, you have a revenue share agreement, which only kicks in once you receive a job that pays over X dollars. The other thing is that people are choosing not to purchase a house. Increasingly, people of our generation are choosing to, say, purchase Bitcoin or Ethereum or some other cryptocurrency because, in their perspective, it's likely to appreciate and deliver a better return than a house, and it's liquid. So it's probably a, a likely better use of their capital. Wow. So you just basically outlined the problem today. But yeah, like what is the solution and the way out? Not everyone is entrepreneurial. I mean, sure, people can kind of do a course and learn how to code, but you know, it's kind of also a chicken and egg thing, right? Because you kind of need to get your education to be qualified to get a job, to have that income, to um, pay for your home. But yet at the same time, I think something to add here is obviously the, you know, income hasn't increased I mean, the salaries of graduates, for example, hasn't increased parallel to the increase in housing prices, for example. So the answer is, what is the solution? So I would say what happens is that pressure builds up within a system and then it hits kind of a release point. And so an example would have been, as I mentioned, you have Lambda School and alternatives to a more formal education. And this is something that Peter Thiel famously tries to encourage with the Thiel Fellowship, where he gives people, Vitalik Buterin was a great example, a grant to, instead of going to university, try and found something. Now, appreciating not everyone has that entrepreneurial streak, but there are increasingly accepted alternatives to the kind of credentialism of going to an Ivy League college and getting a degree. So for a lot of employers, like an Ivy League education is a signaling effect. It shows that somebody has a moderate amount of intelligence, they can motivate themselves to complete tasks. Now, if we are able to find alternative ways of signaling that or certifying that, then people will have access to lower cost alternatives you know, in terms of getting a job in the workforce and not being saddled with monumental amounts of debt. Necessity is the mother of invention when it comes to other significant costs. People from yours and my generation are likely to incur in our lifetimes, like a house, uh, you know, we're seeing other inventive solutions. I don't think anyone is there yet, but you're seeing alternatives like 3D printed houses and communal living options. So 
I would say none of these solutions happens quickly. They're all things that evolve over time in response to pressures and needs. Well, I'm really enjoying this discussion because I think it's really shifting perspectives and also just like you were mentioning, like the binary view of debt and how it is bad. We must pay it off. I mean, for example, you know, I come from an Asian upbringing and my father's always like, clear your debts, but then you can also see it work for good. Thanks for explaining that, Sid. Actually, that's a really good explanation. Um, Actually, it'd be really great to actually learn about your background and how you are so informed about this because maybe you want to also talk about your experience. You know, you said that you had to update Excel spreadsheets and deal with debt in the actual system right now. I mean, if you want to kind of expand on your background, please do. Yeah. So prior to being in crypto, I came from a background in banking and finance. So I used to work in institutional banking in a very specialized area, which is called securitization. So this is something that fuels home loan lending, car loan lending in the wider economy. What it involved was effectively we would help lending companies to raise debt through issuing bonds, and they would use that debt to give out home loans to moms and dads or car loans to moms and dads. And the part that is called securitization just referred to the fact that the loans would be used as collateral for those bonds, which meant that mums and dads would repay their home loans. That money would then go to repay the investors who had purchased those bonds. And those investors would be, say, pension funds, superannuation funds, which is something very common in Australia, and other banks and asset managers. So these were funds and asset managers who were investing retirement savings, for example, or parts of bank's balance sheets. So when you deposited a bank, part of that could have been used to fund the purchase of these bonds, which in turn funded home loans. So that was a sort of more simple explanation of what I was doing in banking. And then following that, I went to work at a commercial lending fintech, and I needed to set up a program so that it could raise money through debt to provide commercial equipment finance to customers. So in my time in both companies, I observed that you have a lot of bottlenecks in financial markets and that a lot of processes were being done in very manual ways, mostly, as you alluded to, in spreadsheets, traded around in email inboxes. And then you would have third parties who collect fees for largely trading PDFs around. And so the cost ultimately gets passed on to the people who take out the home loan or the car loan. And it's a system in which it felt like time was moving a little bit slowly. So it hasn't changed a lot, probably in 20 years. And it's really hasn't evolved towards a kind of global system. So you say global capital markets, but the idea of a global capital market was somebody pulling up a colleague in another country and offering to sell them bonds or debt over the phone and confirming via email. So it's not really 21st century technology when you think about it. And I think what this meant was that capital was really getting bottlenecked between countries and also in these large institutions that moved very slowly. And the debt, it basically wasn't going to promote innovation in new industries and in new areas. So as I started to learn more about the blockchain, I got to thinking we have this global layer of infrastructure where we can program financial contracts to shift and transfer money. Why couldn't we build a capital market on top of this brand new layer of infrastructure? And why couldn't that be global first? And why couldn't it promote economic opportunity in new cutting edge industries? So in my mind, really blockchain is kind of the first proper fintech. All fintech prior to this was really just a fancy front end on systems that were built in the 80s and haven't been improved since then. Blockchain is really the first time that we've actually said, let's build a new system. 
Thanks for that whole overview. It seems like there's different forms of debt. You're just saying there's loans, there's bonds. But in the real world sense, with your experience at a bank and at a fintech, is literally PDFs and spreadsheets being shared around and people picking up the phone and talking to each other and trading them, which is not what people think when they think capital markets. They think money in a physical sense is moving around the world, but really it's just spreadsheets. Sid, thank you so much for joining us on Yowcast and giving us an overview on debt. I really hope that those listening that we've shifted your perspective on debt today. So thank you, Sid, again, for joining us on Yowcast. You're very welcome, Sam. Thanks for having me on. It was great. This new system built on blockchain technology that Sid talks about certainly seems to be the way the future of debt is heading. My perspective on debt has certainly changed after speaking with him. I like the reminder Sid makes that having debt doesn't mean we're insolvent. The debt we have just determines what level of risk we're taking with our finances and what value we are really getting out of it. What I particularly look forward to delving into next with Sid is whether blockchain technology and decentralized finance really can fix the problem we have with debt today. If you'd like to watch my full-length conversation with Sidney Powell, head to the Yapcast YouTube channel. I'm Samantha Yap, and you've been listening to The Story of Money by Yapcast. Thank you.